Welcome to House Calls, where we talk to investment bankers from Kane Brothers, a division of Key Bank Capital Markets Incorporated. I'm your host, Dave Johnson, the CEO of Foresight Health and the author of The Customer Revolution in Healthcare, delivering kinder, smarter, affordable care for all. I co-author a monthly thought leadership article with a rotating cast of senior bankers from Kane Brothers. In each piece, we do a deep dive on a fascinating sector of the dynamic healthcare industry. This month, we're looking at how not-for-profit health systems are deploying innovative capital formation strategies to build out their service platforms. Our article is entitled, Health Systems Embrace Platforming and Innovative Financing Strategies. My co-author is Dave Morlock, a managing director and co-head of the firm's health system M&A practice. Welcome to House Calls, Dave, where the bankers, like you, are always in. Thanks, Dave. I appreciate it. Great to be with you again, as always. So, Dave, this article has a long history. A year ago, almost to the day, we finished writing an article on adaptive capital formation. And I think we even recorded the podcast for that article. We did. Yeah. Then something called COVID happened. That's a good reminder of how, how fast the virus has spread and how much impact the pandemic has had on healthcare delivery. Uh, writing the article a year ago, of course, we had no expectation that the world would suddenly shut down and everything we wanted to say about health system strategy would seem irrelevant, at least for the time being. Uh, the amazing thing, though, is here we are a year later, uh, is how resilient healthcare markets have been. Uh, we've seen the types of deals you and I were contemplating a year ago actually accelerate so the topics of platforming and capital formation are more relevant than they've ever been. Let's hold off on speculating why that is for now and dig into the underlying concepts. So first question, Dave, let's talk about platforming. What is it and why is it key to healthcare strategy now? Well, that is a great question. You know, the definition of platforming and what does it mean to have a platform in healthcare probably depends on who you're talking to. 10 people will come up with 10 slightly different definitions. From my perspective, it's a matter of getting the right business lines and the right assets in your portfolio and have them aligned with the type of company that you want to be, right? We often say asset light. Maybe the phrase is asset right. You know, you need to strategically think about do you want to be a total cost of care company or do you want to be the kind of organization that takes care of patients and problems sort of on the back end and downstream from the top line revenue? And in each of those instances, you've got a unique set of assets, business lines, risks, capital formation strategies, et cetera, that all have to fit together into the right type of platform. You know, outside of healthcare, we see platform companies all over the place. Hotel industry, obviously, yeah. uh, the retail industry. A lot of those are focused ultimately on consumers and meeting consumer needs, something healthcare historically hasn't been terribly good at. To what extent do you think platforming is an intermediate stage to consumerism in healthcare, or maybe even in some ways a, a first stage? Yeah, I think it's a facilitator towards the move of consumerism. 
traditionally healthcare providers have been focused on what's best and most convenient for the providers, as opposed to delivering the right care in the right place at the right time in the lowest cost fashion. I think platforming, we're moving your platform away from an asset heavy brick and mortar. We're all about the hospital mm-hmm. and move it toward a digital consumer centric, convenient platform and access for what's best for the patient and what's best for the community. Mm-hmm. I definitely think that's the right direction for folks to go. And if, if you're moving in that direction, you then have to start thinking about things like the social determinants of health. Right. It's not just consumerism, it's social determinants of health, it's wellness, it's prevention. It's how do you keep people out of the hospital, which is turning the business model on its head from how do I generate volume in my emergency room, in my ORs, and in my beds. Such a great point. We often say that we're not going to change the way we deliver healthcare until we change the way we pay for it. And what you're describing are these new payment models that are dramatically shifting risk onto providers and to some extent onto payers as well, or payviders in many cases. And in that world, a hospital visit is not a revenue opportunity, it's a cost. That's right. Elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah. If you are responsible for the total cost of care and the top line dollar that comes in, if there's typically a $20,000 inpatient admission that you've been chasing after in a fee-for-service environment, all of a sudden that 20 grand is money to be saved by keeping the patient out of the hospital. And that creates, in essence, a medical arbitrage. Mm. And that's why you see all of this investment money flowing into companies and platforms around taking risk, value-based care, and, and upstream with the insurance dollar as opposed to downstream in a volume-driven fee-for-service mechanism. If a traditional health system that's been very hospital-focused doesn't eventually shift its focus then you know I worry you'll just be commoditized and, and it's then an economic race to the bottom. And the only way to really solve that when you're in a commodity business is huge, huge scale. And that's still a very hard space to be in when you're talking about such thin margins in a capital intensive environment. Well, it sure is, but, but you're right, quite honestly, most of healthcare is commodity-like. Yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe that's turning into a high-volume, low-margin business, which works against sort of the idea that a lot of health systems historically have had that if we own and control all the factors of production, that's how we optimize revenue and profits for our company. Yeah. So let's get into the heads uh, of health system administrators and deal with the schizophrenia. Well, it's difficult to be all things to all people and do that really well, right? There's a draw on management time and attention. There's also a draw on capital allocation. There's always more you know, capital needs than there's actual capital to go around when you're in a health system. Think about a health system that over time has developed, for example, a home care and hospice business, right? So you get a large multi-billion dollar multi-hospital system 
And they've, they decided years ago, we're going to get into the home care business. And they've sort of built this thing up over time. Now, their CPA can't point on the financial statement to the spot that says, here's your equity position in home care, right? They get, it's not on this balance sheet. But interestingly, an economist would look at that and say, you have a ton of capital that's tied up in that business. Right. It may not show up on your balance sheet, but it's definitely there if you were to go into the marketplace and sell that business to somebody else. And it's sort of that economist view of the world versus a CPA's view of the world that, you know, some health system CFOs need to shift their thinking and think about the amount of capital that's actually locked up in these ancillary business lines. You know, it, it's so true. And everything about sort of the way healthcare is operated in the country has really amplified the acute care episode. And that applies to capital too, because the go-to mechanism for funding for not-for-profit hospitals has been tax-exempt bonds. But as we point out in the article, it doesn't really align very well with the types of products, services, and technology that health systems need to incorporate and have to operate these seamless tech platforms uh, that ultimately interact with consumers. So let's talk a little bit about the limitations of current capital formations and why we're starting to see not-for-profit health systems start to embrace capital formation strategies, more typically associated with for-profit companies. Yeah, you're right. Look, the the traditional not-for-profit tax-exempt bond issues, those are fantastic for building hospitals or building new bed towers connected to the hospitals. Mm -hmm. They make sense for brick-and-mortar, long-term physical assets, but they don't work for building physician networks. They don't work for the development of the IT platform necessary in order to shift to uh, a consumer perspective and things like that. So we're starting to see many not-for-profits augment their capital formation mm-hmm. strategies yeah. in, a, in a creative way, like joint ventures. So they sell stakes of ancillary business lines into joint ventures, does a variety of things. It, it raises capital. It's a way to tap into that equity capital that I referenced a few moments ago mm-hmm. that the economist would tell you is sitting there on your balance sheet, even though you can't point to a line item and say, there it is. It's a way to tap into that capital. And now you've got cash that you can flexibly apply to physician networks, consumerism, IT, et cetera. That's that's one approach. We also see health systems that are availing themselves of taxable debt more often than they used to. The prevalence of municipal bond issuers shifting to the taxable market over the course of the last two years has been pretty significant. Now, part of that is the spreads between taxable and tax-exempt debt are pretty narrow. So when you look at that price difference between those two forms of capital compared to the additional flexibility that it creates, you know, it's, it's worth the price difference. I think that the traditional approach of looking at the cost of capital and saying tax-exempt bonds are the cheapest cost of capital, therefore that's the most logical direction that we should move for capital formation, I actually think that's a thing of the past. I think you need to think through what's my full suite 
of capital raising opportunities, could be tax exempt debt, could be taxable bonds, could be selling real estate and taking long-term leases, could be selling stakes of ancillary business operations like home care or urgent care. Um, all of those are legitimate capital formation strategies. And the thought is, what's my opportunity cost? If I can raise this capital, how can I invest it? Yep. That's really where your focus should be, not just on the absolute lowest cost of capital. Yeah, we're throwing a lot of um, financial concept at our listeners right here. So I'm just going to stop and uh, explain a couple of things. The reason tax-exempt bonds are fantastic, to use your word, for assets like hospitals is that they have a use requirement. They can only be used for a nonprofit purpose. And they have restrictions regarding the term of the debt related to the asset life of the building or equipment being financed. Therefore, a, a building with a 30-year, 40-year life uh, lends itself to a, a long-term tax-exempt bond issue. It's for a nonprofit purpose, and it can carry a very low interest rate. When you get into these other types of areas like physician practices and technology, they either are taxable in nature to begin with, therefore they aren't for a tax-exempt purpose, or they tend to have very short asset lives and therefore tax exemption doesn't really work very well. Mm -hmm. Also spread relates to the difference in the interest rate between a taxable instrument and a tax exempt instrument. And the taxable market is so much larger and deeper than the tax exempt market that those spreads can get very narrow. And there are even times when taxable debt is less expensive than tax exempt debt. Yeah. That's really important. And then on the capital formation side, probably the biggest difference between a for-profit and a nonprofit company, or actually two big differences, one on the for-profit side, they can issue stock, right? So you, yeah. you know, people can invest and get equity. And that's, that's a huge source of funding, not available to tax-exempt entities. And tax-exempt entities make up for that to some extent by carrying large cash and investment positions on their balance sheet, which is also another source above and beyond some of the ones you listed. So as we're looking at these health systems getting larger and more sophisticated, they aren't just doing the kind of plain vanilla tax exempt bond to finance a hospital. They're actually thinking systematically about the entire enterprise and how to generate the highest return on investment across all these different platforms. And that just lends itself, as, as you were saying, Dave, I thought you made the point really well, to sort of a multiple forms of accessing capital, each with their own cost and benefit, and then applying those in ways that, that generate the, over, the highest overall return for the company. That's a great summary. I was a CFO earlier in my career at a, at a major academic medical center. So sometimes crusty old finance guys like me tend to use too much jargon and lingo. So no, no, you weren't at all. Uh, it's amazing that you're such a nice guy for having been a CFO who spends, uh, you know, 90% of their day saying no to people, right? So, uh, being skeptical is a great tool for a CFO. Just make sure you smile while you're being skeptical. <laughs> there you go. But for me, I walk the fine line between skepticism and cynicism every day. I really work at it. Dave, let's get into some examples. Tell us about M Health, Fairview, and Accent Care 
For those of you who don't know, mHealth Fairview is the new brand name for what we are all used to calling Fairview, and it recognizes the University of Minnesota Health Affiliation, which is an integral part of Fairview. Yeah, sure. So Fairview is this fantastic health system in a wonderfully vibrant community in Minneapolis. Multi-billion dollars of revenue, several hospitals, uh, several thousand physicians. It's really a fantastic healthcare organization. They had, as part of their business portfolio, a home care and hospice business that was an important element of the continuum of care, but it's arguably not a, a core part of their functionality. So what they elected to do was seek an operating and capital partner to grow the home care business, to provide the management bandwidth and attention to that business that Fairview itself internally couldn't generate on a consistent basis day after day. And so they ultimately set up a joint venture arrangement with Accent Care. Accent Care is a national home care and hospice company, great organization, super high patient quality and safety scores, you know, excellent financial outcomes along with those patient care outcomes. The two organizations came together, set up a joint venture. That joint venture then acquired a majority stake of Fairview's home care and hospice business. The joint venture then has a governing board with representatives from both organizations to monitor the economic outcomes as well as monitor patient care issues, uh, medical directorships, et cetera. So, you know, it's the kind of thing that freed up capital for Fairview. It freed up management time and attention for Fairview. And long-term goal is it'll improve operations for that particular business line for them while they still maintained a foot in the strategic portion of the continuum of care related to home care. So I think that was a great example of deciding what's the right platform that we ought to be involved in. And then how do we execute a capital strategy and, a, and operating tactics in order to get on that correct platform? Yes. Yeah, so when the dust settles, they end up with some cash, right, that they can yep. use toward other strategic needs. Yep. Maybe more importantly, they end up with a strategic partner that really knows how to run this business well. Right. And if they do it well, they can plug these assets into a platform, which is uh, what we're talking about, that kind of seamlessly connects the post-acute care operations with the acute care operations. And really, I think, results in a better experience for those people needing access to the system, both through the acute care component of it and into the post-acute care. Is that a fair way of thinking about it? Very fair. Absolutely. All right. The Well Tower and Jefferson transaction, also a really interesting one for somewhat different reasons, but some of the same reasons as well. So let's dig into that a little bit. Yeah, so that's a slightly different example in that Well Tower is not a care providing company in the way that, you know, Fairview and Accent were both care providers just in sort of different spots on the platform. Well Tower is a real estate investment trust and they and Jefferson Health announced a, a joint venture 
that that really integrates clinical and financial strategy. So what Welltower did was acquire some of Jefferson's real estate assets. That creates investment capital for Jefferson to fund certain other clinical activities, academic activities, gives them a chance for dollars to address social determinants of health. And that growth capital is also going to help Jefferson accelerate their expansion in outpatient clinical services, right? So shift the platform, the acute care setting to the outpatient setting, the ambulatory patient-facing portion of the platform. And then Jefferson can then support Welltower in some of their other activities they do in the Philadelphia market, like senior living, senior assisted living, independent living, memory care, those kinds of things. So it's really a win-win partnership for the two. Awesome. The other thing I like about Welltower is there, for all intents and purposes, a really enlightened landlord. They own, as you said, long-term care facilities, congregate facilities, you know, all over the country, but they also have a number of partnerships with organizations like Caremore to try to improve the resident experience. So by virtue of partnering with Welltower, Jefferson not only gets capital, which always happens with retransactions, they also get an owner that has a positive perspective on how healthcare is evolving and brings some ideas and relationships to the table that wouldn't otherwise be there. And so synergistically, I, I think this is an example where just like the Fairview and Accent Care transaction, where one plus one equals three or four, or maybe even five. Right. We've got several other examples in the article. So we encourage people to read it and get smart on both platforming and alternative forms of capital financing to really underlie some of these new platforms that are emerging. One last thing before I get your prediction. We've had quite a year, and I think most healthcare professionals would say that COVID has accelerated the pace of change toward value-based care delivery, virtual care delivery, platforming, and these alternative forms of capital raising that we've talked about that align so nicely with platforms. Dave, you want to just talk about the post-COVID healthcare world, why we aren't going back to the way we were doing it before and what you think we've got ahead of us? Well, listen, I, I think moving into the platforming direction, telehealth, the delivery of acute care in the home setting with the right personnel and the right monitoring, I think all of that benefits communities, it benefits individual patients and society as a whole, and will ultimately deliver clinical outcomes that are better than the clinical outcomes we deliver now and at a lower cost. You know, I just think that's a really good thing for healthcare consumers and enlightened health systems that move in that direction. Mm -hmm. And for the health systems that their strategic perspective is hunker down, double down on the way we've always done it. And I'm going to keep cutting five to 7% out of my operating budget every year because my fee-for-service reimbursement keeps getting ratcheted down. Mm -hmm. I think those health systems are going to be in a race to the bottom. So it pays to be forward thinking as a health system in this regard. Does that result in more consolidation and the emergence of these more comprehensive care delivery companies, I guess? 
Yeah, I think it does. You know, whenever we've done these kind of podcasts together, you always ask for a prediction at the end. Yep. Right. So I give it to us. Yeah, give it to us. I work with CEOs and boards. So from my perspective, the focus needs to be beyond 2021. So this is not a set of predictions on the next nine months. It's a little farther into the future. And because I like working with you and talking with you so much, Dave, I'm going to give you a two for one uh, predictions. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So prediction number one is that Medicare Advantage is going to continue significant growth in the value-based care space. Now, I don't think we're going to have Medicare for all in the foreseeable future, but I do think we're going to have Medicare Advantage available to many more. Mm -hmm. All right. And that shift is going to create a battleground between payers, private equity, and health systems in the race to align and consolidate physicians. Yep. So that's prediction number one. Then prediction number two is that in five years, I think the top 20 health systems are going to control two-thirds of the hospital revenue in the country. The additional consolidation is going to be a response to the commoditization of the hospitals and you they're just going to have to grow and scale wow those are big predictions i'll one-up you on ma i think ma not only will grow but over the course of the next four to five years it will ultimately migrate to the exchanges okay so people will be able to buy them directly on the exchanges which will make the exchanges more robust and bring tighter pricing and so on to that marketplace particularly as i think we'll see the government step in and provide reinsurance and some other things to allow for tighter pricing but i'm i'm kind of with you on the consolidation piece we're starting to see the emergence of truly national players and super regional players. And it's hard to not believe that that won't continue as the marketplace kind of gets more and more focused on managing risk and also managing this transition of not only providing great acute care services, right care, right time, right place, right price, Dave, like you'd said, but from a risk perspective, starts thinking more holistically about the individual and preventing disease, promoting health, managing chronic illness when it appears, and really trying to keep individuals healthy and out of the hospital as much or more as treat them efficiently and effectively when they're in the hospital. So buckle your seatbelts. That's right. Thanks again for a great discussion. I encourage all our listeners to read the article In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, and keep doing what you do to make all of our healthcare system kinder, smarter, and more accessible and affordable for all.